0: With Mumbrella's Retail Marketing Summit returning on the 23rd of March, 2023, now's the best time to bag the biggest discount on tickets. Take advantage of the group rates available and save up to $2,785. Book now at mumbrella.com.au forward slash retail. Welcome to another episode of the Mumbrella cast. I'm Callum Jasmine. And today we look at the sporting world's single biggest event, the FIFA World Cup through a critical media and marketing lens. What's the opportunity? What are the issues? And is sport becoming the problem child of the advertising world? After that, a wide ranging and fascinating chat with Dentsu Creative's new chief creative officers, Avish Gordon and Mandy van der about the new toys they have to play with at Dentsu, disrupting the traditional creative model, balancing a creative and personal partnership, and the significant work the creative industry still needs to do on progressing diversity and what they're doing within the space themselves. Joining me on the panel today, giving him a very warm welcome back to the podcast, is the new editorial director, Damien Francis. Hello, Damien.
1: Colin Jassman, Melbourne bureau chief. It's so good to be back with you after my short break.
0: It's a shame my um, my role hasn't changed in the in the meantime. I'm still that bureau chief. You
1: can't yeah. go any further up from bureau chief. You realise the that
0: there are no promotions or demotions. Senior
1: now vice now. president, I hear, yeah. is probably the next step.
0: And then um, I'm sorry that I uh, gave your your title to someone last week, uh, giving Toby your title, but it's the acting managing editor,
2: Andrew Banks. Assistant to the managing editor.
0: Exactly. Yes. I've uh, been with you since 6 a.m. this morning, so yes. we're very familiar with each other already. Right. And welcome back, Damo. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So I'm sure there are a few uh, rusty heads Around the country this morning, after waking up to be um, very briefly given a glimmer of hope before then having the French crush that hope. Um, Banksy, we were in the office for that, looking at the, 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 the game through a,
2: a median marketing lens.
0: 20,
1: 27 minutes of hope, was it? Until that was slowly crushed after that. Decimated, I think. Decimated, yeah. yeah. Mm.
0: Regardless of that, while many people are familiar, With the scale and the importance of the world cup finals this is an event that australia have managed to compete in for the fifth successive time um but this one is very different to those previously damo i'm gonna throw you in the deep end to uh to start you back off in your return to the mumbrella cast and give you the easy task of setting the scene for this year's event in qatar for the listeners why is it different what are some of the considerations for viewers and why has it been grabbing the headlines for maybe the reasons you wouldn't have expected?
1: I wore my floaties today, Callum. So I'm I'm prepped for this. I'm ready for it. I, I think the first thing that we need to actually consider is just how big the World Cup is because I know everyone's a, a football fan. It's easy to get behind Australia now that we're making more World Cups thanks to uh, the tweets and qualification. But uh, look... The World Cup, according to FIFA audits, uh, last time around, which if you don't remember was 2018 in Russia, uh, had uh, 3.572 billion people watching that. Now, that's more than half the world over the age of four. Uh, The final between France and Croatia gained 1.12 billion people viewing Uh, Of which 884.37 million, uh, (laughs) 880, a lot of numbers here, uh, tuned in via linear TV, and 231.82 million via uh, out of home or digital. Uh, So these are massive, massive numbers, right? The, The World Cup in terms of viewership is uh, immense what does that mean for um for average matches well 64 matches for an average viewership of 191 million uh now for australia uh, of course the numbers are, are far less but in our market they're extraordinarily significant uh if you don't remember australia played france in the group stages in 2018 as well uh, now, that, according to the the viewership, uh, gained 1.653 million metro viewers, peaked at 2.7 million metro and regional, uh, ended up in us losing to France as well that time, uh, a little bit less convincingly, uh, but it was 2-1 to France, if you don't uh, remember. But I guess the, the big deal with, with this is now, while you think back and go, oh, Russia, maybe that was a bit problematic back then, the relationship with Russia was a lot different in 2018. In 2022, and we've had this build up for quite some time, there has been angst with the selection of Qatar by FIFA as the host of the 2022 World Cup, Uh, and it seems to only have grown since then. Now, whether that's because of the the human rights issues, uh, whether that's the attitude towards same-sex relationships whether that's the attitude towards alcohol, and we've seen that play out in the sponsorship issues with Budweiser over the last few days. It seems that this World Cup is throwing off just as much action off-field as it is on-field, unfortunately, uh, it's sad to say. But, Cal, I know you've been talking to a lot of the people in the industry for their sort of view on what's going on. I'm going to stop trying to remember numbers from from viewerships and go to the more interesting stuff of of what what we actually think about this uh, situation
0: it's it's funny that not this doesn't downplay any of the issues that you've you've mentioned at all there but this world cup was actually supposed to go to australia so there's an added dimension there of frustration locally here i say it was supposed to but australia was in with a very good shot for this 2022 world cup which eventually did go to qatar and um there has been an interesting netflix documentary recently that shines a bit of light over the the situation in how that actually was awarded to qatar kind of been anecdotally speaking to a few people in the industry and also outside the industry because you know while we um we obviously do cover this from the media and marketing lens it's the consumers that are the ones that are turning on to this And, you know, you may position it that I live in a a sort of bubble of sorts, an inner city Melbourne bubble, but, um, you know, even within the industry, you speak to people who have said, uh, traditionally they would have been catching every game, whether that's people, expats who are from England, which we have a lot of here in Australia or, um, senior executives who are just Australian and have kind of gotten used to this four year cycle where, you know, you switch on, I think a lot of people do switch on world cup mode. I mean. Even myself, I'm a massive football fan and I rarely watch international games, but there's a lot of people really not having that same excitement about the 2022 World Cup. And, you know, we, we look at the, the viewing figures from 2018, obviously this morning was the the Australia opener game. So we don't have those figures yet and we'll get them tomorrow and we'll also get, I think, A better snapshot of just how many people are now watching on um bvod platforms because obviously that's massively changed over the last few years but now it's not a like for like but we can compare culturally quite similar the uk and australia the opener for england and iran yesterday which was at lunchtime on monday local time in the uk had an average audience on bbc one of 7.4 million on linear channels compared to the opener in 2018 which was 13.7 million. So that's a pretty big decrease and also with the caveat that that was lunchtime on a monday i'm sure a lot of people would have been watching maybe on the iplayer channel in the office. So we had 439,000 metro viewers for the um the argentina saudi arabia game last night which is pretty good figures as well but it does seem like there's a lack of general interest. I mean, you walk around the city, you don't really see um, pubs with bunting uh, saying, we're showing the, the game here and speaking to friends in London as well. I was living there for the last World Cup in 2018 and it was genuinely like a carnival. Every the, the, the whole place kind of, I mean, it was over summer, but the place goes into lockdown and speaking to friends over there, they're saying there's just no buzz this time around. The ethical issues have really been... The, um, the main story this time around.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the ethical issues have, and like I was saying before, right, there's more action off field um, or, or as much action off field as there, there is on field. And that's where it really hits the media and marketing industry. Because when you're fighting fires like Budweiser was recently, uh, and, and I'd hope that really it was FIFA fighting those fires perhaps unsuccessfully on behalf of Budweiser, Uh, this close to the start of the World Cup, it's not going to take long for brands and marketers to really think about whether that heavy, heavy financial investment is worth the the effort and potentially the pain after that. Uh, And particularly when you say, you know, whether the crowd then gets as involved, whether the fans are really as engaged as they have been previously. I mean, that's going to be fascinating to see what the audience figures are like watching the Qatar World Cup by comparison to what we've seen before. Because there's no real reason, sporting-wise, why this should be any less than what we've had before. It should be more. But we've had so many controversies over, like I say, the aforementioned uh, human rights issues uh, it, it, we even had the issue a, a few days ago of the the teams who were in alliance to wear armbands in support, not the, just the one love armband, the one love armband. So not just same sex relationships, but but diversity inclusion uh, more as a whole. And being told a few days before that they couldn't do that, and players would face yellow cards uh, if they did. Now that becomes super problematic for the game itself, and they weren't given. Gareth Southgate, the England manager, for example, saying, "Okay, that's fine, but why didn't we get more notice than than what we did? Why is everything here being done last minute? It just seems that none of this is really rubbing off quite well. And if you're a brand that's invested huge amounts of money, uh, let alone shipped, you know, substantial quantities of alcohol to a, a traditionally relatively non-alcoholic country um thinking that you had permission to do it but if brands aren't getting that return on investment and we all know today it's all about return on investment then you've got to wonder whether that same amount of investment will be able to be found for the next iteration whether it's from the those brands who potentially could have been burnt this time around or are looking at that investment uh for next time around i think that's going to be the the, the main issue here fifa you would argue is fighting a bit of a fire on I mean, a number of.
0: That levels. was, that was $112 million. The Budweiser, um, partnership alone. Obviously we saw this year with the AFL deal, which was multi-billion dollar deal, the reason why these things are being, I guess the, the importance is as we saw with that, the commentary was, we'll pretty much pay whatever it is being asked for because sports is the only thing that's getting guaranteed eyeballs. So, you know, make these arguments that um as FIFA will has done this time around, let's just focus on the football, kind of it brings everyone together. It's not the case when um when all these other issues get brought into it innately and you're awarding it to somewhere like Qatar. And then at the same time, the partners that we are seeing increasingly in sport, you look at the 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 data and the the biggest partner um brand partnerships in the market are some of these ones that are increasingly becoming those ethical issues such as gambling, such as alcohol, such as those kind of uh, fossil fuel companies. Banksy, you've got some data on those, um, I guess on the support that the gambling industry currently has with, and you you see it through partnerships like TAB, which SBS has got quite heavily in its coverage this time around.
2: That's right, Cal. Um, I I did some sort of work on the stuff that's come through with tabcorp particularly wanting to bring in new rules to change how gambling is uh gambling advertising is run on tv um partly due to the fact that per capita we lose more money to gambling than any other nation in the world and also that betting on sports is the fastest growing form of gambling in australia at the moment um with all the different players that we have uh the work that The Australian Institute published a new polling finding that uh, 71% of Australians agree that gambling ads on television should be banned. Uh, That is creating a problem. I mean, they're saying that uh, fossil fuel advertising shouldn't be on, you know, during sporting events as well, particularly like as part of that, they're calling it the new cigarette advertising, I think 60% found that fossil fuel sponsors uh, are in fact the new cigarette advertising. And also 51% say alcohol TV ads should be banned. So it's a bit lower, but these are starting to kind of become very important issues around, around sport and, and how uh, advertisers have to kind of consider and I guess adapt to what is good messaging and what is, you know, is starting to become problematic for those codes and and for the brands and everybody that's involved in them.
0: So we saw the partners for SBS's coverage this time around included brands like McDonald's, um, as I mentioned, Tabcorp with its Archie Thompson featured segment is Archie's tips. We've got the, um, Qatari tourism board and a couple of others we, um, Kind of took note of a few of those this morning, but the the, the I, I guess the interesting part here is few brands and few opportunities on SBS, which caps its ad load per hour. You really are getting high impact on the slots that we're seeing. So, for example, if you're watching on an SBS on demand, you'll quite often see we're on an ad break for in linear TV. Enjoy the silence, which you know, I think many did this morning. It gives them an opportunity to feel. They can go off to um, to grab some water. Whoever whatever.
1: wrote that clearly does not have kids. No. <laughs> Seriously, enjoy the silence, enjoy the silence. at so 7 a.m. Was, in the morning. Was,
2: it was directed at straight at you, straight so, at me. so the point of that is to do with the caps. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yes. Right. So um, SBS, as we covered on their upfronts at the start yeah. of this month, um their sort of argument was, you know, you really do get impact advertising on SBS and the lift you see is very noticeable because we cap at five minutes per hour on, on demand, which is the same ad load as Netflix's new offering, for example. And, um, I guess frequency capping, capping of about one as well per hour. So, um, I guess they have this consideration that they need to be careful not to break that. Obviously you've still got um, some of the teething issues with advertising on um, BVOD automation and targeting. So we, as a result, we it's, you know, that kind of situation where it's great for SBS because they have this massive opportunity for eyeballs on their advertising. And then they also have a great opportunity pr- to promote their slate of, uh, of content for, I guess, going forward.
1: You know what, it's great as well? It, it's great for SBS and it's great for other media owners in terms of what you alluded to before in the introduction, Cal in that is sport potentially becoming the, this problem child of, of advertising. When you're marketing, uh, the, the, the programs to the local audience who are invested in the sport, in the purity of the sport, they're up in the morning because they want to support their country or their favorite athlete or whatever it happens to be. And the politics has melted away from it. You're going to get high impact advertising against that sporting event. The question mark is though, those big investments with the sporting event live and in the build up in terms of where that event is occurring and under what situations that uh, event is occurring in. So if you're a brand marketer, you would potentially be looking this at this as a two-speed economy in terms of, is it actually more beneficial with better ROI, safer ROI to be looking at campaigns with local media owners in the countries that you're trying to target because that's where the audience is connected and not necessarily thinking about the politics rather than live at the event. If it happens to be big, if a relatively, uh, I guess, politically driven, uh, event under the circumstances like Qatar 2022, uh, happens to be, and that doesn't just go for football, that goes for any event, which um, and we've seen a number of them uh, that have been held under a a sort of cloud of different politics for for whatever reason. But it does seem to be that advertising in sports at the moment is at this massive crossroads, whether it's the brands that are being aligned with the teams or the athletes, and that can be sports betting, that can be cryptocurrency, that can be alcohol, that can be water. There's a number of areas. We we saw it recently with the linter and the cricket. And we saw it with Hancock Prospecting and the, and the netball as well. There's a number of brands which, after the fact, in the public eye seem to become relatively problematic. But sport is now in this crossroads of really having to think about the the next foot forward in terms of its brand partnerships and where its revenue is coming from because the critical eye is really focused in on it at the moment. But there do seem to be, uh, to my point before, some safer places to align brand to sport.
0: Yeah, um, and but I guess with that you have the, the complexity. Uh, this is where the eyeballs are. And until those broadcasters start deciding we're not going to take that money... I don't
1: know how much. 100%. percent i tell you what we know for sure. We, we know for sure that this is not going to be a quick game. I think most people know I'm a big Formula 1 fan. If you look at Formula 1, when did we Aramco. lose? <laughs> ramp. Well, let's not talk about that. <laughs> but before that, when did we lose tobacco advertising from Formula 1? 2007. Really? Uh, and maybe even Marlboro appeared in 2008. I and can't that quite was remember. Hand... But... It
0: was iconically hand in hand, you know. 100%. It was part of the furniture. These
1: are not fast-moving issues, unfortunately, and that's another thing sport potentially, as a whole, has to work on: is the time it takes to seriously consider the situations uh, and respond to, you know, to the, the current environment, because arguably hasn't been happening quick enough. Maybe it's slowly starting. I,
2: I just want to add too that it's a, a really good win, I guess, and a position for SBS to be in, like. Traditionally, it's been the home of football in Australia. Um, It's got a good sort of lineup of people uh, commentating and it's known as the network of diversity and multiculturalism. I think that allows it to sort of position itself to weather a bit of this um, uh, storm that's going around with the Qatar situation. I think it would have been other networks at this point. It could have been a bit more problematic. It might have been a bit more heightened um and I think you know from an s b s point of view i think it, it it's it's probably gonna do well for them ratings wise
0: well it's it's been sort of um fascinating seeing how this plays out and how s b s has actually dealt with it. I haven't caught too much of the uh kind of out of game coverage the the punditry so far, but you know with someone like Craig Foster who is massively outspoken on on um i guess human rights issues locally as well, just on a final point from a branding perspective, I guess this all comes under the banner of what is supposedly sports washing with Qatar's actual main intention to bring the world cup to Qatar. Speaking to uh, ad executive yesterday, the kind of the the views has sort of been, that it's been a complete branding disaster for both Qatar and FIFA. We see speak about the Qatari tourism board, which, you know, we've seen these ads regularly on the SBS coverage. Um, one of the the key partners using the Italian football legend Andrea Perlo as its star, but after everything that's surrounded at this time, the tagline "No football, no worries just sort of falls completely dead but you you it's, I mean you just think that most people will come out of this and think, well, it was already contentious whether or not I'm going to travel to the World Cup there. Why would I fancy going on a holiday in Qatar now and you know, this talk, I heard this on a UK news podcast, the news agents that the, the event organizers and those higher within Qatar have actually been and are currently regretting just putting this whole thing together because from a brand point of view, as I said, it's just been a complete disaster.
1: I'd love to know exactly what they, uh, they the, the Qatari government, wants to get out of it. I would be surprised, and I'm just throwing out uh, opinion here, uh, whether it is the tourism dollar as much as it is Uh, just putting Qatar on a global stage more for political reasons. It's hard to say whether they would really see this as a a failure and I totally understand why people may think that that's that's happening. Um, But, you know, I think there's a lot of complexity as to whether insiders in the government would actually think that that campaign uh, and this whole winning the World Cup and hosting the World Cup process has been a failure. I'm, I'm not sure that it, it will be, um, but it depends on what your goals are.
0: Coming up next, we'll have my chat with Avishan Mundi, the new CCOs at Dentsu. <laughs> Just a quick note here before we get into the interview. Something went wrong with the microphones of Avish and Mandy in this one. Not sure what it was, but otherwise it's a great interview. So enjoy. Avish, Gordon and Mandy van der Merwe. Welcome to the Mumbrothercast. Thank, thank, uh, thank you.
3: Thank you so much. and Kel, May I just say that that was an almost perfect pronunciation of my surname.
0: <laughs> well, for full transparency, it wasn't the first go. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that out there. And Avish, you, you wanted to um, just start with a little yeah, acknowledgement. I thought,
4: window, I thought right? we just start by um, acknowledging the traditional custodians of the Gagal people of, of the land on which uh, you know we're meeting today and having this conversation. Um, you know, we pay our respects to elders, past, present, and future, and extend that respect to any of the Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander listeners that my feet listening,
0: tuning in. Thank you for that, and um echo the sentiment. And it's great to see you both here in the studio in North Sydney, in Mumbrella HQ. Um, so you're only a couple of weeks to a month, I think, into your new roles as chief co-chief creative officers at dentsu creative how, how are you settling in any big shocks any cultural changes what what's the uh, feeling so far vish
4: it's been wild it's been fun and wild and um you know the um no cultural shocks in the sense that uh there's just so much energy and excitement at this at the agency i think um you know we've before we started we were speaking to Kirsty a lot and she was like this place is awesome and there's so much so many toys to play with and there's so many cool people um and then you know you sort of I don't know in the, through the interview process you sort of go yeah 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 sure you know you, you sort of buy half of it but you sort of wonder about the rest of it and walked in and went oh she underplayed it completely um, you know there's it's it's a pretty exciting place to be at the moment um monday was actually you can talk more about um tokyo which she was just in tokyo recently and and then got to look under the hood even further mm-hmm. of Densu um Densu creator which is you know that's where the that's where the big the big opportunities are going to be um you when we start looking at it from a global perspective
0: well tell us about that you were in the, the experience yeah. in tokyo at hq you kind of um we hear that it's a different beast in Tokyo and obviously the, the kind of market dominance they have there, but what's what's it really like?
3: So uh, the reason I went to Tokyo is uh, I got invited to meet up with uh, all of our other global CCOs and we had the Densu Creative Council in person and Tokyo was so kind to host us. Um, it, it was a phenomenal experience because not only did I get to spend time with other ccos that makes this network so great we've got to spend some one-on-one time with fred Laron, and he is a force of nature and, and i think for, for me it was a time to work on how we take the strategy that he uh, spoke about at cam how we actually take that to market and how do we deliver on that and how do we really back each other as a network to make that possible and then going to densu hq and actually understanding all of the capabilities especially from a digital tech, media and entertainment point of view was just all inspiring um, I, I think of this, She said it really nicely when, when Kirsty told us, like, there's a lot of opportunity here. It's a different thing to see that firsthand yep. and, and at scale. So hugely inspired, come back being uh, annoyingly optimistic at the moment. So, yeah.
0: Well, it's, it's been, um, I think it would be fair to say, a big year for Dentsu. Um was there in Cannes this year when they came out with the big new proposition, Dentsu Creative, which um, funnily enough, on, on the beach, they had the um, the Dentsu Creative, um, I guess you would call it beach hut. Um, and, you know, Monday morning, they had Dentsu Creative, the big flag, which, you know, that was a day before the presentation mm. where they launched it. And then you think, oh, well, God, it was staring right at us. But um, Fred was there. And uh, we did a quick interview on the beach. He's kind of interestingly got one of those, um, there's very few kind of rock star creative vibes there, and I think Fred definitely was one of those, obviously semi, semi-fresh to Dentsu, and also he's got massive respect from his time at FCB. Um, you said that he was involved, I guess, or you spoke to him prior to joining. How involved was he in kind of selling that um, selling that proposition to you? Oh, I
3: myself spoke afterwards. The, the man is made from magic. Uh, we left the interview and I like we've got to watch out for him he can convince anyone to do anything but but more than that I think that I wish he was just so good at telling us about his vision. I think
4: that Mandy and I had we was meant to be a half an hour chat with him an hour and a half later we were still like we had to like go like dude we need to go and work now like, and, <laughs> and so are you um, but we hung up the call and both Mandy and I went this is an amazing day. Let's go and make the best work we can make. And we were still working at the previous place. And but he he sort of instilled a sense of like anything is yeah. possible. And it was a half, you know an hour hour and a half conversation. The this the vision that he sort of sold us, and I, you know you can sort of start to see the beginnings of it when you talk to people in the agency. Is this idea of modern creativity and what modern creativity looks like, and how we can bring that to to yeah. um, to our clients. And it's an exciting proposition because, in theory, you know, a lot of agencies are talking about what the future is, and um, he's sort of defined it in a in
2: a
0: really tangible way that we can, as creatives, work with. Um, so, so what was that campaign at M and what can we what can we expect that to come out? That's, um, <laughs> I think you might have seen parts of it already. To be honest. Um, <laughs> So obviously this Dentsu Creative new offering, that integrated um, kind of, uh, I guess, single agency that we've seen kind of come into play this year, how does that feel on arrival? Is it, is it kind of up and running? Does it all seem like it's going to plan so far?
3: Uh, I think uh, the benefit that I wish myself have joining from the outside in is that I think we have much, much further than a lot of people inside the agency actually realizes and, and and live and breathe because we walked in and there is such cross-functional capabilities sharing of briefs sharing of resources but also for me a willingness to lean on each other's skill sets i know at my previous agency it would take a lot of conversations just to have the type of conversation that i'm having mm-hmm. right now when i let's say send off an email to the guys at merkel for example um, so, so you you are really getting the best of that integration, um, and I think there's not a sense of why are you asking this question. It's a business that's driven by creativity, and they know that creativity is going to get them to where we need to go.
4: I think the the other thing to say is that it's it's new, right? It's new for everyone mm-hmm. at the moment, and that like with most new things, everyone's initially excited about what the possibility can be, but also there's, a, there's a sort of an, a sense that we have to figure out what it is as well. Um, and I think that that's part of the part of the excitement is actually using this time to go, this is how we're going to work and this is going to be the way we operate in the future. And I think that's quite an exciting thing to be part of is shaping what, what it looks like.
3: And, and everyone that, that's joined has joined at that moment of we're building something together. It's very seldom that you get that opportunity as a creative or as a leadership team to build and shape together when we've got such a singular vision of where we want to go.
0: And you, you kind of mentioned there the kind of the the cross-functional um, capabilities and that massive capabilities that you've got across the entire network. There's been a lot of discussion about um, sort of density moving towards this sort of hybrid consultancy, hybrid agency, global model. Do you find that how would you sort of define the creativity or the, the, the creative direction that you're going at Dentsu Cre- Creative? Uh, there's a lot of creatives in there <laughs> um, <laughs> in comparison to maybe, other, I, I know you spoke about the actual um, way that it plays out, but in terms of in comparison to some of those other agencies or traditional agencies that you've worked at. I, mean, um,
3: I think it's because we've really defined what modern creativity means to us and, and how it affects our clients and, and it's a very singular purpose. I've got so we think of modern creativity as ideas that's big enough to live everywhere. Um, help me out of it, bold well, enough.
4: Bold enough to basically extend charter new executional territories and rich enough that they can personally connect with millions of people. So it's it's connection at scale. Yeah. And I think those that's an interesting proposition. In terms of half traditional, half consultancy, I think that's you know, Angela Tang is maybe not say it as um, graphically as I'm saying it, but the, her, her, her initial communication was around the fact that it's Dentsu Creative is like the love child mm-hmm. of the traditional agency, you know, creative agency and um, consultancy. I think. So,
3: so it's it's neither, but it's a beautiful thing <laughs> that's
0: being born. So, I, I guess in that sense, then, how do you um, how do you define success within that that model? Then, because I know a lot of sort of the old ways of um, maybe judging that would be, you know, accounts or big campaigns. What what's a sort of marker of success then for the new Dentsu credit?
3: all the way, maybe.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so there's a there's a philosophy that's that holds all of this together. It's called sanpo Yashi and it's, a, it's look, the first time I heard it I thought it was such a beautiful explanation of um well at least a driving force behind the work, mm-hmm. the way we do business, and Sampojae stands for. It basically means it's good for our business, good for your business, good for society. And mm-hmm. um, and I think when you distill what success looks like with those three um, sort of markers, you know, our business, your business, and society, um, it's easy to then recognize when you've been when you've won and when you've not. Mm-hmm. Um, it can't just be good for you and good for the society and the not client. good
3: for, a client. Mm-hmm. Not good okay. for a
4: client and it can't be you know if any one of those parts is is lacking, I think it's a, it's a mess and so yeah. success is where we pull those three components together and actually create work that fulfills that and you know is off, offers something that i don't think the industry currently has in place it's you know we we're, we're not we're not built to think about all three parts of that um, triangle
0: yeah it's um it's something that we've sort of been tracking and over the over the last few years we've seen a lot of i guess well-known individuals in the creative industry Um, break out on their own and start up their own agencies and a a big part of that has been the response and I guess the selling point has sort of been we are an alternative to the traditional creative agency we can service you in this this so this is what you know as you kind of say a lot of brands are putting more of a focus on their purpose do you find that oh is this the response to that at a group level uh, and are you having a good Response back from that in the market. I mean, it's it's been
4: four weeks for us, so it's a very difficult question to answer in terms of experience. Yeah, um, I think I think what I can say is it's it's a philosophy that is new to me. Um, it's new; I've not heard this before from in, from the industry. And I think that that's that as more brands move towards work that is you know meaningful in culture, but also Good for their business, and you know, respectful of the relationship they have with the agencies. I think that that's, you know, that's a proposition that I think clients can get behind because, also, because it's I mean, true collaboration and true partnership. We're,
3: we're finding we're, when we're talking to people who want to join Dentsu Creative, it's nice to work for a place with a purpose mm-hmm. I and mean, a genuine defined purpose as well. You know, I, I think that the good for society. Um, good for my business good for your business it feels like there's a harmony over there that's not competing at all costs to get us yeah. a, at the top but but also you combine that together with what our vision is of modern creativity and our capability and our scale i i think we're on to something over here
0: on that um the, the it seems like you know some of these agencies there's a certain i guess cachet for clients moving to these little indie hot shops at the moment um do you think a lot of those traditional agencies could potentially, I guess, do what Dentsu Creative are trying to do with the Sanpo Yoshis, or is it a case of you know you kind of have to do this mega rebrand, which Dentsu have obviously done this year? Is it a case of I guess making that complete shift, or can well, you, is it possible is to be do? Interesting. Slow? Like uh, I
3: don't know. Avish, what do you think?
0: I have an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Give us your opinion. I think you've
3: got a uh, take what you have. That's good but I think you do need to go on a new philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I do think you need to have a radical new approach in how, how you hire people, the business that you that you look after, the way that the staff thinks about why, why they're there. I don't think it can be incremental change. I think it is transformation. I
4: think, so I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. I think if you look historically, I used to work at um, agencies, you know, they used to be the work, the work, the work. Um, there used to be um, good is the enemy of great. Um, there disruption. used to be disruption as a founding principle. If you think about a lot of the the old versions of looking at what what how agencies define themselves and define their philosophy, it was it was work-centered and work-focused. This is the this is not just that. It is that. Of course, it's that on the one side, but there's people um, built into it, and there's humanity built into mm-hmm. it, and there's product built into it. And whether that can be replicated. I mean, to be honest, I hope parts of it are replicated by other agencies because I think the industry could do with a bit of humanity in times. And can it be owned in a different, by other agencies? Of course it can be. But I think what, what I'm excited about is the idea to shape something that hasn't existed before and to make it something that yeah. we can own.
0: And then just um, a final point um, kind of talk about these agencies breaking out. It's been a bit of a discussion over the last week on Umbrella about. Um, I guess one of the important things when you're starting up your own agency is being able to display the work that you've created at um, your past agencies. You know, you have to show we've, uh, we've worked on these massive brands, but there's been a little bit of, I guess, contention about how you go around displaying that. We did do a, um, a survey, which we will be out by the time this comes out, um, just keen to get your take on how far you can you can run creative credits when you're displaying them on your new website. Should you give credit to everyone that worked on the campaign, or should you just say, you know, we did this? Or what What do you think? I uh, I've got a very straightforward version
4: of this. I think if you if you're a startup. Um, you need to prove that you have the capabilities to convince businesses that you can do the job. And for that to happen, I think the individual work that's been done by those people in the business needs to be celebrated. However, it needs to be clearly defined that it's not the work of the agency. I think that that, it's a simple simple recognition that the people who work here were involved in it, but this is not the work of the company that was, you know, that whose website you visited. Mm -hmm. I think that that example, Disappears quite quickly once you're established. I think there's a grace period where that's an acceptable sort of formula, but at a certain stage and a certain scale, I don't think that that's a, even um, a consideration. Yeah. I think you need to move away from that. but it's just about recognizing recognizing how you know new startups actually acquire business. I think that's it seems yeah, reasonable. I think it's
3: also equally important for us to shift this conversation around um, agencies and how many of the people that made that famous piece of work is still in that agency mm-hmm. so i think there's a larger conversation to be had around credentials uh, and i i haven't thank you for bringing it to light. i've not had had that conversation before and it's certainly created some debate between uh, a and myself because we have gone and worked at agencies because we thought like hey that's the kind of work that they make and then found that half of the people aren't there. Anymore, Not there anymore, yeah. Anymore, which is which is very important also to know how many of the founding thinkers or the accounts or the strategy people that push that piece of work through is still at an agency when you're going into a pitch. And I think transparency is a great thing because it levels the playing field, you know, yeah. so, so that you really know who's your people and what are they able to do, whether you're a startup or whether you're a biggie. Mm-hmm.
0: It seems like a sort of... Uh, the, the 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 transparency is sort of as you mentioned a grace period seems like it probably applies on both sides. So. Absolutely. So on you both, you're now I guess the top creative role in an in an agency. You first worked together as art director and copywriter at TBWA. Is that correct? Or was oh, it's be- the TBWA Huntsville scars thing. Just
3: really. So I, I was at TBWA.
0: <laughs>
4: this was how Money and I started working together because I we just. Um, couldn't I just wasn't spending any time. We were in a relationship, and then we just weren't spending
3: any time. So, so I get all the money. Money gets some of the credit, <laughs> and you never <laughs> work. Thank you,
0: thank you. I wish that you. That you <laughs> okay, the work. record's <laughs> been straightened. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned that you were in a relationship then, but I, I think a good place to start would be: it's quite uncommon for a creative duo to still be working together now as co-chief creative officers, which we. Very rarely see. um How have you been able to, I guess, continue that workflow as a creative duo now in such a senior position? Do you know what? It's it's
4: not easy. Um I think the I think when we were starting out, it was a lot easier to sort of separate life and work and yeah. be able to de- delineate roles and delineate. You know, we used to we used to have this thing when we used to get onto the uh, ferry to go to Paimon. We would. As soon as we get off on in Piemont, we could start talking about mm-hmm. work, and then in the afternoon we got back on the ferry. That was the, you know, that was us mm-hmm. not being able to talk about work anymore. And we had really strict like visual cues and visual rules. I think the as you go up this um, this food chain in advertising, the,
3: as you claw your as way you up. claw your way up <laughs> to
4: this food chain, I think the reality is um, it's much harder to to find the balance in in work and life mm-hmm. and and so as a result, Monday and I have a lot of hobbies. Um, because I think that I don't think anyone who does this job 24 seven and talks about it 24 seven can ever be very good at it. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a debilitating uh, thing to just be talking about one thing for your whole life. I think creatively, I think it stunts you. Um, and so we've had to find ways to add other things to our life, you know, <laughs> so we both do pottery um i'm a runner mandy taught me how to scuba dive so we've got all these other things yeah. that, that become really important because it's a distraction away from you know just ta- only talking about work
3: i also think avish i would say um there's just a radical honesty in our relationship whether it's a personal or a work relationship in terms of where our priorities lie, right? Mm-hmm. So we very seldomly have the difficult conversation of like, I'm so sorry I have to cancel you, I'm working late. It's like there's a look that you give each other and you're like, yep, buckle up, mm-hmm. we're pushing through. This is this is an important one. And there's no guilt or resentment, I'd say. But equally, there's I'm very fortunate that I get to work with a person that's like, Maybe you just need a break. Yeah. Maybe you've just been here for too long. Let's go for a let's go for a walk around the block. Let's see the blue skies. Let's let's reset.
4: Uh, it's weird, right? You um, you said it's a. I mean, I, what's one of the few CCO joined CCOs. To be honest, I don't know how you do this alone. Like, I think it's a really um, I think we've we've often spoken about absolute power corrupts absolutely in this business. And you, you know, as much as CCOs might have a. Vision of what it is that they're trying to create. I think having someone to keep you in check—that yeah. is your peer—is um, quite a—it's—it's it's quite revealing um, about what type of creative you are. Um,
0: so Money keeps me in check, and
3: and you definitely keep me uh, in definitely. check.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Um, I mean, you can go for dogs together and still chat about work, but once you get that scuba um the what would you call it, a snorkel in your mouth there's no if you see no... me run time. maybe maybe also you run because it really does
3: clear your mind with suffering <laughs> yeah suffering
0: really <laughs> um so we we look around the industry now and as well as um being i guess one of the only co-ccos mandy you're also the only um well one of two female ccos i believe alongside Tara Ford and the monkeys. I think advertising has been criticized um, for at least uh, uh, amongst the ongoing senior, senior roles or top creative roles in particular, sort of being a little bit behind the curve and in, in still being very male dominated. This obviously has a, a knock on effect with the work that millions of Australians are seeing because the last checkpoint. Um, or thereabouts is the eyes of a, of a male. Um, h- how important do you think it is to increase and continue to have more female voices leading creative departments?
3: Oh, hugely. Um, but I don't even think it's just, you know, female voices. I think it's all sorts of diversity. I, I feel like the benefit that I have working with a VISH who is a person of colour, Indian descent, is he just puts another layer of yeah. sense check a- across that work. Um, a- and a lot of the times what I notice in departments or in agencies or even with clients where that level of diversity doesn't actually sit and they you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. You don't know where your bias is lying. You don't necessarily realise that, oh, my goodness, I've yet again written a script where the male is the lead, or where there's gender stereotypes, or where everyone is Caucasian, because you know, we write and we create often from where we know. Um I also think with having more diverse leadership at, at the top, everyone sits up a little bit and go like, oh, should should I actually yeah. be a little bit more aware, a little bit more sensitive? Um I wish myself always try to foster you know, environments of inclusivity where there are no holy cows. I prefer you to ask and I prefer you to give, you know, I'll give you my opinion on where where I'm coming from, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, And also just to push the people around us to go out there, you know, don't stay in your Bondi bubble, go and experience and go and explore somewhere. And sometimes I found that all that they need is someone that's a friend to yeah. get onto that train with them, to go somewhere. Um, and the work is better for it, without a doubt, I'd say.
0: And then, you know, we do have, uh, I guess, outside of just creative um, agency leadership, we've got increasingly more initiatives or groups. For example, it's the, the auntie's first birthday um, this Friday in Melbourne, which is sure to be um, a big event. They're having a big party. Um this has kind of been, um, it, it's had fantastic take-up in particular mm. in Melbourne with um, senior female leadership in the, the industry. How important do you think things like this or collective um, initiatives are to progressing the industry? You,
3: hugely. And, I mean, uh, we're fortunate enough to have one of the OG aunties, Sarah McGregor, that's um, one of our ECDs down in Melbourne. I think that they a lot of the times, if you are a minority, you are stuck wondering, is it just me? Has that just happened to me? Am I a little bit crazy? Am I sensitive? But I think it's the collective when you come together and you can really talk about how you feel that gives you a sense of freedom and release and, and I'd say strength, you know, just to say, like, okay. Well, maybe that time was just me, but all of the other times was not just me. Mm-hmm. This is a real, genuine problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know what? There's so many instances where it's just one or two people that come together and they change the world. I mean, I'm always like, I take my hat off to Avish, um, Anton, Pierre for starting. The only one in the room. It just takes one or two people yeah. to. Notice something isn't sitting right, and then you can change the world, right?
0: Well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you about next, Abish. um Can you tell us w- where that came from, um, and for those that don't know about only one in the room, a, bit, a little bit about it and the work you've been doing? So, um, oh, a couple of years ago, two years ago
4: now, um, maybe a year and a half ago, we um, you know, it was off the back of um, the murder of uh, George Floyd and, and the you know the whole. Black Lives Matter sort of arrive, you know, spread across the world, and 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 uh, Pierre contacted Ant and um, said, you know, what we've I've got this thing. I think this industry is due for a shakeup. It's due for a chance for us to use this momentum to actually redefine how people of color see themselves in in um, in advertising. And um, I got a phone call. They were because we'd had this conversation a few times before in different, you know, sort of different iterations. It's it's really hard to create momentum around Mm -hmm. things like this. Um, And they went, let's let's do this. Let's let's start this thing. Let's figure out how we can unite the the three of us into a little collective that then goes out and creates little projects that aimed that are aimed at really specific things that we want to tackle. And so we started with. Um, just a phone call where we all sat going like, okay, what are we doing here? Like, how do we, like, like, we know we have to do something, but what exactly are we doing and how are we doing it? And and from there, we, you know, we pulled some team um, team members into it and some creatives into it. And, and then only one in the room was born out of, uh, you know, one of the creative discussions. And it was kind of, it was kind of an interesting one because I was, at the time I was sitting in a boardroom and there were about 70 something people across a, a group meeting and I was really the only person yeah. of color in the room. And so I, I actually took a, I've still got the little video. I took a little 360 of the room and went, this isn't just a name. It's actually the reality of mm-hmm. life um, for all people. And so we we started that and, um, you know, we did some some work and we've, you know, been working on doing research around um, actual diversity. And, and most recently, and the thing that I'm quite excited about is, um, we recently launched this thing called Destroy This Brief. And it's basically, a, it's going to be an ongoing Thing. Um, but basically, what we've done is we've taken creativity and put it at the heart of the of the solution. You know, at the end of the day, we we are an industry built on creative ideas. We when clients come to us with really comp- complex business problems, we we solve it with creativity. And so we thought, well, why can't we apply that you know simple thought to this really complex issue? And so. The goal is to create a series of briefs um, mm-hmm. that the industry can solve together. We've just, res- you know, just closed our first round submissions for the first brief, and we had over one hundred and twenty um, submissions. Yeah, wow. which, which for me, because at, at a stage we were like, "What if we only get five? What are we going to do?" <laughs> you know? It's okay, guys. We'll come up with some, some by ourselves. And but the response has been phenomenal, and I think, I think the response is phenomenal, phenomenal because people want to make a difference.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: I think and people you want guys to change. i been so good at. Um, inviting people in oh i mean it's three people can't do this right like this is not a, i think transformation and you know creating equality creating diversity is not a one person two people job it's it's literally everyone's job to make sure that you create the environments and create the spaces for people to feel accepted and welcome and
3: part of
0: yeah well, it's 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 brilliant work and it's really important work that you're doing so it's great to hear um, that you know, 120 submissions. Uh, hopefully, you can manage the work. <laughs> the no, that's the next
3: job. <laughs> the next job. <laughs> Transformation does not sleep. That yeah, that's we what we've realized. I mean, you, you get up what you put in. Exactly. And if, you, yeah. and if you do want to change the industry, I think everything that like we do over and above our day jobs is for the love of us, right?
0: For sure. what well, has been. Um super awesome having you you both on the podcast and really appreciate you coming into the studio today to join me oh thank you very much thank you so us.
4: much Al.
3: it's been great
0: and that's it for another week on the mumbrella cast a big thank you again to mandy and avish for joining me and thanks to you banksy cheers Cal. and thanks and welcome back after your little sabbatical demo
1: pleasure in melbourne bureau chief see you next week